0: God as I listen to that video that really captures I think the heart of our church the heart of our dream for every person here not just to discover you but to, to discover ourselves in you to grow and to become to be chiseled to be used and so tonight um, we invite you we invite you to use the tools you need to in our lives help us to to listen to to realize you're right here and when we leave here to walk with you in Christ's name amen all right so we are on the the last message tonight of this series the series called rooted um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing but I'm just going to remind you that it's, all, it's been all about the roots all the way through this deal and growing deep roots. And um, we've said from the beginning that, that the soil of, of the roots is God's love for us. Just like you saw in the video there, reminding when you feel like junk inside, God's love. You've got to put down your roots a little bit, suck up some of that love, right? Because that's going to speak back into your, into your life. We said that the deeper our roots go into God's love, the more stable and healthy we become. The more stable we become in our faith, when the wind blows, when hard times come, we won't tip over. The healthier we become in how we live and how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we're able to love other people, it starts to flow through us instead of um, instead of maybe some of our habits of how we treat people and 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 think of people. Right. By the way, the the I knew this was going to happen from the beginning of the series. If it, all this time talking about deeper roots and for the stability of wind. Um, over the last six weeks, including today, people just kept coming up to me going, This is going on in my life. This is going on in my life. This person passed away. This person got sick. These things are going on. And, I, and, and that's not different from any other time period. The, the wind is blowing. We live on this world. It is a world that doesn't function like heaven's going to function. So, so it's, there's going to be times. There'll be times in how our faith will stand or die, and how deep our roots are into God's into God's love. And this is what Paul was praying for the church in Ephesus. He just said, "Hey, I want your roots to go down." This is part of the prayer. May your roots go um, down into God's love and keep you strong. And we read that verse uh, every single week through this entire series. And um, tonight we're going to finish with a, a message called "Redefining Deep." And I don't know how this will affect each of you, but, but I, for me, this, this series brings up some issues about about what does it mean to grow in Christ? What does it mean to to be a deep follower of Christ? Or, um, well, I'll just tell you the truth. Every pastor I know, every pastor I know has had this experience uh, once they've been teaching for a while. Somebody comes up to them, and they'll say, "Pastor, you won't. You'll just say, Doug, right? Doug, I'm sorry, we're, we're, we're going to leave the church." And I'll say, well, "Why?" And you'll say, you know, we're just not getting fed. And I'll say, what do you mean? Well, you know, it's just, it's just not deep enough teaching. We need to go somewhere where there's deeper teaching. When you come to me with that conversation, you need to understand something. I won't have a clue to what you're talking about. I, because deeper doesn't have enough meaning for me to understand what you're experiencing. But it's a wonderful cliché. Now, I have some ideas about what deeper teaching is. You know, I'm I'm doing my best at at what I try to do. So we're going to wrestle a little bit at redefining deeper. And I'm going to tell you what I think most people mean when they come up and and, and say that. So let me just give you the free one before we start. I'm not going to put it on the screen or anything. The free one is, the free one is this. The pastor's doing a lousy job, and he's a shallow teacher. I don't know what that means, but that's the free one. Okay, so let's take some other ideas of what people are saying when they say we need deeper teaching. Some people, what they mean by that is we want more spiritual teaching. We want it to be more spiritual than than it it is, right? And and so we got to wrestle with that. And it's an interesting, the spiritual part is a very interesting comparison note because it always involves like, well, if we're not spiritual enough, you must have been somewhere that felt more spiritual. So let me take you to Luke chapter five. Um, verses 33 through 35. It says this One day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Right? Do you catch the tone of voice that's, that's going on here? See, <laughs> some people come up to Jesus and they go, Hey, John the Baptist's disciples, they, they were fasting and they prayed, and, and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same thing. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Like they're having a good time. Do you understand? Here's what he's, they're saying to Jesus. Why aren't you guys more spiritual? Which I think is awesome they said it to Jesus, right? <laughs> Why aren't you deeper, Jesus? Why aren't you more, more spiritual? Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Right? Which is a really weird answer to the question. Except what he's saying is, I am here. You know, I'm, I'm the groom. I'm groom. These are the wedding guests. Now is a time for joy. That's why we're not fasting and starving and practicing painful disciplines. Right? But he goes on, he said, But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Right? Now what is he referring to there? He's referring to his death. Someday they're gonna die. He's gonna die. The disciples are all gonna see it. Right? And after they see it, they're gonna lose their appetite totally. And for three days they're not gonna be able to eat. For three days they're going to fast because every the thought of food is going to make them sick. They've just lost Jesus. We know that that's Good Friday to Sunday, and that's what he's referring to. There's there's going to come a time. Don't worry. They are going to fast. And they didn't once the resurrection came it was celebration time again because God is with them. But basically they're coming up and saying, how come you're not as spiritual as John's disciples? How come you're not as spiritual as the Pharisees disciples? And how come your disciples are always eating and drinking, having a good time? And Jesus is going, well, because I'm here. That's why I'm in the room. I'm right beside them. That's why they're having such a good time and it was really a spiritual confrontation. Right? So here's so that's kind of even Jesus wasn't above it. But number 2 is this spiritual looks different depending on where and when you are. That's why this is so nebulous. Right? So that's just, we're going to go on Matthew 3 more about John the Baptist. It says this, "In those days John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness, and began preaching. So this is before Jesus was on the scene and John the Baptist doing his ministry. His message was this, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a very forceful message. And um, the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said he is a voice shouting in the wilderness. So this is John the Baptist, repent. You guys are giving your lives to sin. You need to come back to the faith. You need to be prepared. The Messiah is coming. That was kind of the message, and Isaiah had actually said he's coming. And his message would be that prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So so Matthew, when he's talking about John the Baptist, actually gives John spiritual credentials, right? John is doing exactly what he's made to do, exactly what he's supposed to do, with the right message in the right place. He's a spiritual dude. Okay? You never would have thought he wasn't, but read on, because then Matthew starts to describe him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. That wasn't normal. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. This is kind of a rough and tumble guy. Kind of lived in the wilderness. He had, like, you know, just camel hair, coarse coat, belt around, and, and he never ate a decent meal. He ate only honey that he'd get himself and eat it out of the comb, and, and he ate bugs. I'm not thinking he was very um, girthy. You know, he didn't have a weight problem. When I think about it, it goes on that, you know, that would be John's appearance, how he looked. He wouldn't look like a, people wouldn't look at him and go, spiritual guy. They would look at him and go, crazy guy. Right? That's what they would say. People, he goes on, Matthew says, people from all, from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. So even though he looked like crazy guy, it's basically saying everybody from the area, Heard about him, went to see him, went to to hear him, and they and when, and when those who confessed their sins, then he baptized them in the Jordan River, and this was his ministry. By the way, Jews had, I don't think Jews had ever been baptized before. It was Gentiles who were baptized to become Jewish, at that point in history. But now they were baptizing the Jews back into the faith, or an act of faith in looking forward to the Messiah's coming. John. That, that whole verse was about John's effectiveness. Everybody came to hear John. He was extremely effective. People repented of their sins. He was baptizing them and saying, okay, live ready. Look for the Messiah. He's going to come. You know, straighten out your life. Now, when I think about what John the Baptist looked like, well, here's what the movies show you. They show you a guy like that, right? And that's not bad. He's got, I don't think I think that's supposed to be like honey on the side or some kind of a honeycomb or something, and he's kind of a crazy looking guy. But candidly, I think the best the best John the Baptist is actually Hagrid, right? <laughs> I mean, except for the weight, right? <laughs> but, but he's just like, when you see Hagrid, you need to always think John the Baptist. They would get along so well together, because look at the guy. All right, so that's a, that's a spiritual giant right there. I mean, not Hagrid, but John the Baptist, okay? Now here, let me tell you another spiritual giant, but it looks completely different. The Apostle Paul. And if you're thinking a little bit, you're going, well, how do you know what the Apostle Paul looked like? Well, I I don't really, but there's an ancient document called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Now, this document is as old as our scriptures, but it wasn't included in our Bibles. It was rejected when the council got together because parts of it are just fanciful, right? Sort of it's made up stuff, but hidden in between is some stuff that might be actually accurate. Right? So so I mean, it doesn't mean it's all wrong. It just meant it had some stuff in there that the, the, the council goes, no, 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 we're not putting that into the Bible. Right? So I'm just going to show you a part of what it says because there's a, there's a chapter in there, a little part of a chapter, that describes what Paul looked like. It says this And he saw Paul coming, a man small in size, bald headed, crooked thighs, note bow legged, right? Well built, with eyebrows meeting, rather long nose. And full of grace. Right? And that's how he described him. And I started looking at pictures that artists have drawn. No one's ever seen Paul, that, you know, but here's how they, they drew him. And I thought, you know, that's pretty good. I mean, except for this, he didn't glow or the halo thing. But but the long nose, he looks, you know, maybe well built. I can't see his legs, so I don't know if he's bow legged. But, but it kind of a, based on that look, the only thing they got wrong is um, they forgot the unibrow. So I put it in. <laughs> right? Just because. That's what the text said. So there, there, he is with the unibrow, right? And now, now, think about the complexity of the ministry. John's ministry: locust, wild, crazy guy, honey guy, right? He's looking rough and tough and crazy man, right? But, but Paul, Paul's an intellectual. Paul's been trained. He's he's theologically, he spent time with Jesus in a very, and he's learned and he's teaching phenomenal theology. He's spending time in prison. John the Baptist got his head cut off. still want to be a Christian, by the way. One guy's in prison, one guy got his head cut off. But that's what happens sometimes to the men of God. Both of them, incredibly spiritual, but both of them looking completely different. Different purpose, different time, different ministry. Right? So so there's John the Baptist. and Now, another guy who I think is probably a spiritual giant... um, but he's not in the Bible. It's Martin Luther. Right? And I don't have a lot to say except that he needs some locust and some wild honey because he's a little overweight in this picture. But he's a spiritual giant. He he started the Reformation. He phenomenal history. You know, great, great, great guy. Let me show you another person who I think of many of us look at as, as a spiritual giant, Mother Teresa. You know, and phenomenal ministry. She wrote phenomenal things. She one of my favorite things about her was, she said, that we don't have any problems, we only have challenges and opportunities. And what a perspective of, of, of life. And then here, here's another one many of us look to, right? Who's that? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. <laughs> you can tell the old people are here, they recognize him, you know? <laughs> That's Billy Graham, I remember that day, you know? That's like the 50s or something, right? I mean, he's an old man now, but look at him, he's yelling, he's pointing, Kind of crazy dude, right? And then today, you know, another spiritual giant a lot of us look up to is Andy Stanley. Andy looks like he just had something bad for lunch. Um, He just looks so mild-mannered and hardly ever raises his voice and teaches the word of God. And, And so the point of this is spiritual looks very, very different. And so when you say something's not spiritual enough, it's really a tough one because it's, you know, it needs to be deeper. What does that mean? Well, it's just not spiritual enough. Well, what does that mean? Because it's changing all the time. Let me show you a picture here. Here's this is from a movie, but it kind of captures it. In the in the you can see G- Jesus once standing. His disciples are sitting at his feet in the in the learning position, right? Who are the other guys? Pharisees, Pharisees. right? Now when you look at that picture. Who is the most spiritual, this is not a trick question, in the picture? Good answer. If you don't know, say Jesus. That's always the kill. All right? But if you were there at the time as a Jewish person and you saw this and someone said, hey, who are the spiritual ones? They would go Pharisees. Pharisees. Why? Because they look spiritual, because they're dressed spiritual, even though they were frauds in many, many ways. Jesus pointed it out, you know? They were the ones who had the market on, we know, Jesus, we'd like to hang with you, but we want to be with the Pharisees, because you know what? They're deeper. They're more spiritual. And it's sort of this, we just have to be really careful when we start to, to navigate these things, because the word spiritual shifts with style of the times and the culture. Right? I mean, what spiritual looks like in the United States versus Africa versus China. Right? Depending on the era, you know, the historical period of time you're in, how people dress, how they think, how they look, depending on what their mission is. You know, John the Baptist did everything, but he was so different than the way he talked to people than Jesus did. You know, a lot of, a lot of levels. And yet they were completely compatible. They each had their mission, right? What your gifts are and your abilities are. That's why pastors sound different, and have different personalities and different gift mix. Um, you know, some of us are introverted and some of us are extroverted. And some of us don't know what we are, it just depends who we're with. Right. And then it depends on who the target audience is. You know, who are they talking to? How are they teaching? Because I promise you, I my spiritual whatever that means coming out is different with you than if I help out in the toddler room because it's a different group. I'm not a lot different, but it's a different group than when I when I go <laughs> when I go there, right? So so sometimes when people go, you know, it's just not deep enough. They mean it's not spiritual enough, and that's a really tough one to grab onto. By the way, just. Pausing for a moment, if you start to piece this together, if you ever leave Crosswinds, right? By the end, time we're done, you're going to look, for, you're going to know what to look for in your next church. Just promise you that. All right. So, so what is deep? Another. Sometimes when people say I want deeper, they actually mean I want more intellect, intellectual stuff. I want it to be, I want to be educated. I want it to be more, a little bit higher brow than it is. You put everything on on the low shelf. Now, let me just go. I get it. I totally get that desire and one of the criticisms of Christians is that we're all a bunch of lemmings just following the leader we, we we commit intellectual suicide to receive Christ and so you you dismiss your brains and you just go whatever they say and whatever the Bible says and even though it doesn't make any sense if you just think about it you wouldn't believe it anymore that's what some people say right you've dismissed your your, your intelligence right and the scary thing about that is I don't believe that for a minute that you should do that. But unfortunately, we have that reputation, and and sometimes in church, some some of us really like, you know, could you just give us a little more Greek, the original words, that would really help me, or uh, you know, could you give us like 20 minutes of the historical background of that passage before you teach on it, kind of a moment, and we want all these things to fit together, and we want quotes from Spurgeon, that always makes a you know more intelligent moment, right? Listen to First Peter. This is good news, by the way, for those of you who want more intellectual. Here's what, First um, Peter 3:13 through 16 it says, uh, Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? He's talking to the early church. And, you know, and we have this, hey, go out there and do good things. Who's, who's going to want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. And they are going to suffer, even though they're doing what's right. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. He's grounding them. He's saying, hey, the wind's going to blow, persecution's going to come, keep doing good things, um, and and stay focused on Christ as your Lord. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. But do it in in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Right? Even if they don't agree with you, at least they're gonna like you because you're living this good life, and who wants to who can argue with a good life? Right? But the words I wanted you to catch, I repeated, were just be ready to explain it. Right? To be ready to explain it requires you understand your faith. To be ready to explain it means you know why you believe what you believe, that you have reason behind it, that it's rational. It's not dismissing your intelligence. You cannot explain something. You know, hey, would you explain your faith? Well, it makes no sense to me. I don't know if I, why I believe it. I just believe it because I you know, grew up in the church and we sang those songs and they are very moving. So I believe it. And that's my hope. Down you go. Right? The, the person who's listening goes, okay, lemming, you lost your brains. I'm sorry. I hope you find them again. Because that's the, the response they're going to get. But, but ready to explain it means that faith is rational. It can be thought through, right? God gave us brains so that we can think. He's not telling us to, you know what, just dismiss your brains. This is all a heart thing. No. Use your brains. It's one of the reasons I try to teach in logical order. It's one of the reasons that I try to make sense of things. I'm always asking why, 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 why. Sometimes it gets me in trouble and over my head, and I go, well, I guess that's above my pay grade or above my intellect. But, but I'm always asking those kinds of questions. All right. So what I wanted to get out here is that, hey, there is reason. Intellectual, if, and if you're, by the way, smart you are, grab on more. Good for you, right? Understand your faith. Understand the reason behind it. Understand the defenses of it. Understand theological arguments. Go for it. That's awesome. But I've got to give you one warning. There is a dark side or a flip side to, intellectual, to intellectualism uh, in, our, in our faith. And here's, the, here's part of it. The flip side is Jesus didn't choose his starting group by IQ or educational achievement. This is my way of saying they weren't the smartest guys. Right? The twelve disciples. None of them had degrees, none of them had an education except for what they learned in, you know, in preparation for bar mitzvah, I mean, and they learned a lot. I'm not putting that down. They they really knew their Torahs, but they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't understand any of what you understand. They didn't know who Jesus was. They, didn't, they weren't sure God loved them. You know, that the way you can be sure. He didn't choose them because they were so smart. There was other criteria that, that he chose them. Secondly, Jesus didn't intellectualize his teachings. When Jesus taught, he taught in brilliant stories and simple truth. It's one of the things that's so beautiful. Now, it didn't lack intellectual depth. It just, he didn't explain it like you would want to. And sometimes we actually wish he would have. Right, so, so Jesus taught in brilliant stories and simple truth. He didn't, he didn't reach the most intellectual people. He reached the masses. He wanted people. To, he used to say things like, "Hey, if you got ears, you should listen. If you got eyes, you should see." You know, which meant really, it meant, "Hey, use your brains, engage in this, and, and open your hearts to this." Right. So the flip side is, intellectual can become its own pseudo spirituality. Right? Like, like, well, you're not much of a Christian because you couldn't explain that. You're not much of a Christian because you don't understand some nuance of faith. And you don't know. I said Spurgeon, and you're not sure who that is. You've never heard that. You thought maybe it was a fish because it kind of sounds like sturgeon. So you thought Spurgeon. You know? And you're not dumb. You just don't know. Being ignorant is not dumb. It's just not knowing. Right? So it could become its own pseudo-intellectual, uh, spiritual, pseudo-spirituality. Intellectualism candidly in a church it's often the pastor trying to prove himself how would I know that It's because when I came out of seminary and I started teaching I wanted to sound really smart and then I started doing this for 20 years and you all know me so who cares I gave up the ruse right? And just tell the truth and, and, and move along and grow together and, but do your best and don't give up your faith or your thought keep those two things married together Right. One of my one of my favorite um, quotes when it comes to communication is this: "Never use a big word when a diminutive one will suffice." <laughs> and I don't know who said it, but when you hear pastors using really big words and throwing Greek in, it's really a way of saying, "Hey, I'm smart. Just so you know, I'm so, I went to seminary. Just so you know, you know, I write a lot of papers. Just so you know." Right? Oh, here's the Greek word for that and the Hebrew word for that. Just so you know. You know, and does it really help? And I had one, one. the first guy that I ever worked with, was, I was a youth pastor, Lori and I were working for him. He he went to a, a it was a church of about 80 people. He graduated from a, a, a seminary, which I shall not name. But he thought it was like the Harvard of seminaries. Right? So he would teach and he would not use... He, he would use elongated words. He would use multisyllabic words that were huge. He would teach the, the Greek and the Hebrew, all the stuff, right? But he would use words out of the vocabulary. And I'm sitting in this room of 80, 90 people, and he would teach, and afterwards I went up to him finally and I just couldn't take it anymore, and I said, Randy, because that was his name, Randy, why are you using these incredibly big words? People have to go home and look them up if they're going to understand them. And he goes, that's why I use them because part of my job is to educate them and inspire them to become smarter people. And I look at them and I go, that is not your job. <laughs> your job is to help us understand what God is saying to us, and that's it. You are not here to give degrees out or education the big word. This is not it. You all your, and by the way, you're kidding yourself. Nobody. Go, I was joking. Nobody goes home and looks them up. <laughs> we just don't care you've lost us and so so that but he was bound and determined to do that and and, and where it came from I'm, and I'm not I'm just gonna guess I think it came from an insecure place for him and so he would he would intellectualize his his faith so that's another answer people have what what's deep well it means you know it's intellectually stimulating that is really really deep I knew it was deep as soon as I didn't understand it right all right what <laughs> right. more it's mystical Some people, when they come and they say this church just isn't deep enough, what they mean is it's not mystical enough. There's not enough stuff going on at a mystical level to make me feel like God is in the room. Okay, so so sometimes it's mystical experiences, right? I heard God's voice. Okay, or hidden meanings. Do you know what the number 77 means? Or 666? Or three 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 or three. Right? It's it's like that numerology kind of stuff, right? Or allegorical interpretations. Now the wine in that verse symbolizes peace. Does it say that in the text? No, 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 but I know it does. Right? And it's sort of like everything means something. Everything stands for something, but there's no grounding for it in the text or in from it's not a natural explanation of things. And suddenly you can say anything you want to by making everything. Sound like something. So, this is one of the reasons, by the way, when you read the Old Testament, be really careful not to do that unless the text does it or unless Jesus did it. And Jesus actually did it sometimes. He would point back to the Old Testament and say, This was a picture of before I came. Just as Jonah was in the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the ground for. Oh, whoa. Jesus just did that. And it was okay for him to do it because, guess what? He's Jesus. It is not okay for Doug Mathers to do that kind of stuff because I am not Jesus. Some of your bubbles are burst. (laughs) Right? So so there are environments where the mystical part is everything. And and, and they're anti-intellectual sometimes, those environments. And you've got to be really careful because anything can be taught and experience is the the ultimate measurement. Now, I I need you to hear something. I'm not against experiences. I think our faith is mystical. I mean, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't understand that. That's a mystical thing. When I received Christ, I—not everybody gets this—I felt the forgiveness. I have experienced the presence of Christ, not every single day in the same way, but I've—I've had moments where, as close as you can possibly get without actually hearing an audible voice, I knew what God was saying to me. But. I don't chase those experiences. I don't manufacture those experiences. I don't want to because my imagination is very good, and I could make those things up if I just pursue them. But there was a time in my life when I <laughs> actually all three things. I wanted what spirit. I want. We need to. I need to be more spiritual. By the way, just whispering makes you more spiritual. Did you know that? <laughs> just in case you want to know, like when you pray, instead of saying Father God, just say Father God. That makes you more spiritual, just a little hint. Right? So I would, I would whisper my prayers and sometimes if I want, It would be drama, right? Or, or I wanted to be perceived as intellectual. So I would do homework like crazy to make sure that I could show you something that you never saw before, something you didn't understand. Only the real bright people could get that, right? But I would bring it to the masses because I'm a teacher. Now I'm a mystical teacher because I whisper, right? And the last one is chase experiences. I spent three months of my life chasing experiences, spiritual experiences, looking for God to come. And, and I'm not saying I didn't have any. I'm just saying, and I'm not saying people were wrong, but it was too much, too often. It was a little bit crazy. John the Baptist, died. I don't know. I'm not. But anyway, so so none of them are bad. They just get too chased. Now, when you get into the whole mystical thing, there's some things that happen to your church that screw you up. Just so you know, right? Number one is this: the most mystical person, the most mystical person is the most spiritual person in a mystical church. Do you understand? The one who has the most experiences, the one who can speak in tongues the loudest, the one who can interpret the people speaking in tongues the loudest, the one who has the gift of this or that, the whole thing, when it becomes all experiential on the mystical side, that person becomes the most spiritual. which puts a ton of pressure on the pastor to have mystical experiences because he's got to be spiritual by definition. Right? So the other day I was praying and God said to me, you know, I'm not going to sound cynical. When someone says God said to me, you need to interpret that as He thinks God said to him. Okay, and I don't mean that to be cynical and mean. I just mean it because that's how he should have said it. I sense maybe God leading me. I I think God said to me. And that sounds weak to you. I'm sorry, but I've seen people, I'll give you an example. A certain relative of mine thought he was supposed to play the lottery. By the way, when I say like relative of mine, this is not like going to a counselor saying I have a friend who, this was not me, okay? Just so we're clear. because this is embarrassing. So a friend of mine, no, my brother, <laughs> throw him under the bus. Years and years ago, when he was immature, he thought he heard God tell him to play the lottery. And the numbers came and everything. And he told us all, because uh, in faith, he has to tell us this, right? Because before it happens. Otherwise, I've got the glory, right? So he tells us the numbers beforehand, not the numbers, because he, he wasn't sharing the details with us. He was just saying, <laughs> we got the numbers from God. God told us to play the lottery. So he played the lottery. And he... Lost. And God was embarrassed. What he should have said is, we're not sure, but we think, and we're acting on faith, that God totals the numbers. And then when he was wrong, I guess he should have said, we were wrong. Actually, he shouldn't have done it at all, but it doesn't matter. It's just it's, That's the kind of thing that, that happens. Okay, so you've got to be the most spiritual person in the room if you're going to be the most, you know, you've got to be the most mystical to be the most spiritual. And then secondly, mystic-based teaching is often anti-intellectual. Well, why? Because you can't explain mysticism because it's not rational anymore. It's all experiential. Okay, so, so now I know I've stepped on some of your toes and I'm so sorry, whatever church background you come out of, but we love you and we love each other and we're all growing and, and learning this thing. So, if you go to a mystical church this might happen to you. After hearing a passage explained, you might think I, would, I never would have been able to get that from that verse. I never would have got that, right? Okay, then it's very probable that the teacher shouldn't have got it either, that he made it up, that it's not true. If you can't understand it and get to it, please don't just elevate the speaker, even if it's me, don't elevate the speaker, say, how did you get that? You know, and if the answer is, well, the Spirit revealed it to me, then hold that lightly, just hold it lightly, okay? So that's, that's all for free. Now we've got to do the second half of this message, um, which won't be half. Uh, so what is deep teaching? And, and, and I'm going to tell you, I can't tell you what deep teaching is, but I can tell you some marks of good teaching. Things that we go for here. And if you switch churches someday, um, or you want to hold me accountable to something, these are the things I want to be held accountable. Number one, the foundation is God's love. The foundation of everything we teach comes back to where our roots are supposed to be planted. That's why we put our roots into it, because it's the substance. Everything. When Jesus talked about God, it's my Father. You know, God, for, so love the world. Right, call him Dad. No greater love has anyone than this. He lays down his life, and then he did it. The foundation for our relationship with God, our faith, is his love for us. And that's what Ephesians 3 that we've been reading every single week. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts. Kind of a love concept here. As you trust in him, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand or to catch a glimpse of, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, And how deep his love really is. Do you hear how central this love is? How foundational it is? And may you experience the love of Christ. May you experience the mystical love of Christ, because it is mystical, though it is too great to fully understand. See, I'm not anti mysticism. I'm just keep it in its right place, keep it healthy. Don't let it become the thing. And, it, and it's rational. When we understand God's love for us, it changes everything. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Right? And so for the last few weeks we've been saying, God's love is everything. This is where we put our roots. And it doesn't matter if you're just a seed laying on the top, you have no roots down. When you put your roots down, we don't want you to put it down into mysticism. We don't want you to put it down to intellectualism. We don't even want you to put it down in spiritualism. We want you to put it down into a relationship with God based on his love. That's what we want for you. That's our dream for you. And if you've already started to grow a little bit, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying, I am reaching more and more to understand, to live in, to experience, to pursue God's love in my life. I want to live according to his love in a rational way. Because if he loves me like this, then I want to live like that. And it starts to make sense to you, connecting things together. And as you grow larger and larger, you still are pressing your roots down. Never taking his love for granted, always seeking more, looking to grow, interpreting your worldview of people, places, things to do, what your life is all about through the lens of God's love. This is what it's all about. It's marks of good teaching is that we echo that over and over and again through different lenses, different ways, different verses. But learning to live in that relationship. Secondly, marks of good teaching is biblically based, right? We said this is the the nutrients. This is this is what causes our roots to grow is understanding God's word. What that He spoke? That's why Second Timothy said, and we've read this over the last month. All scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. In other words, it coaches us, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So we want we want our roots to go into his love, but we want it to grow with the the, the guidance of scripture. And we want what we take up and absorb into our lives and start to apply in our lives to be under the 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 tutelage of scripture, consistent with scripture. That's why when I'm teaching and I say something, you go, that's not that doesn't fit with the Bible. That's not consistent with scripture teaches. You gotta take me aside and say, Doug, help me out. I'm not seeing that. Did you make that up? You trying to look smart? You know, say something like that to me. You have my attention. All right, so biblically based, foundations God love, it's biblically based. It's intellectually honest. It's intellectually honest. I can't. I I get really frustrated when people make Christianity sound irrational. It bothers me when they don't connect things. Now, I'm not not saying we have to be all intellectual, but we got to be rational. And and it's it's not hard because God gave us all brains, and we can we can work towards that. Um, Here's what. Paul said when he, when, about his own teaching, when he first came to the Corinthian church, he said, uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1, and then 4 and 5. He said, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words. He used diminutive words, right? Or an impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. Now, when you hear secret plan, you think, "Well, it's mystical." Yes, but they, did, they didn't have the New Testament yet. Yes, none of them heard of Jesus before. Yes, it was a secret to all of them. It's not a secret to all of us, but it was a secret to all of them. So I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom, which means I didn't I didn't craft my speech to manipulate you, right? To tell you God's secret plan. And my message and my preaching were very plain. I was ordinary. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches. Trying to make myself look smart, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, I just told the truth. I just taught it as clearly as I could. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom or how slick I am, right? But you would trust in the power of God. I love that. If you want a model for what I want, how I want to communicate, I want that to be the model. Keep it plain. Keep it simple. Keep it understandable. Don't try to impress. Just do your job kind of moment. So we want to, foundation is God's love. We want to be biblically based. We want to be intellectually honest. By the way, that requires humility. Right? We When you want to be honest about things. And then finally, I suppose I could add more, but finally for tonight, we want our teaching to lead to fruit bearing from the roots up. Okay, there's a, there's a flow to this thing. So what does it mean? It means anything good that I do because of Christ is because of his love. Because I've already got his love. I love him because he loved me and I'm getting it from the roots. right? I serve others because of the love for Christ in my life. I want the flow of the fruit to come from the roots going up. And I'm going to tell you, that be really aware of yourself when it comes to the reverse direction. When I take all the good things, I, I love you, God. Don't you love me? You know, the, the more I love you, I think the more you'll love me then. No, his love doesn't change. You can ignore him, his love doesn't change. You can swear at God and his love doesn't change. You can, you can walk away from God, his love for you does not change. His love never changes. It's not manipulated by your love. But my love is manipulated by, by his. The more I absorb it, the more I want to love him. The more I absorb it, the more good things I would I don't do good things, whatever good things means, so that God goes, oh, now I love you. You finally did enough. That's, that's called bad religion. That's what every religion in the world teaches. You've got to appease God's anger, you've got to do good things, and then God won't mind you so much. Right? It's the exact opposite. God loves you down to your toes now down to my toes. It's and So big, so wide, so high, I can only catch a glimpse of it. So big, so big, so wide, so high that I don't understand it. But when I do, when I start to soak that up, it changes everything for me. When we teach in this church, we want we want to teach. This is why it's a painful place to go to church because we're always pushing. Okay, now, what are you going to do? Okay, now, how are you going to bear fruit? Okay, now, what difference is it going to make in your life? Don't just hear it and walk away. Be hearers and doers of the, world, of the, of the word. Right? So let me end with this. So Doug, what's deep for you? What does it mean to you? I can only tell you what it means right now. First, it means inviting God's chisel into my life, even though I want to run away from it. I really don't want you know what the truth, I don't really want to become more than I am. I'm really quite comfortable, thank you very much, God. But I just gotta say no, I don't wanna settle. I do not wanna settle. So I trust you, I trust in your love. God bring your bring your chisel in, like we saw in the video. It means learning to love God in a responsive way and loving people. Everybody, like we talked about last week. It means loving those who hate me. I didn't make that up, that's a Jesus thing. It means, for me, it means learning to go the extra mile for people I don't even like. None of you, none of you. I like you. It means forgiving as I've been forgiven. For me, it means giving without worrying about recognition. My time, my effort, my money. Remember Jesus said that about don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, giving away that's secret so nobody knows about it. And Ouch. It's nice to get an attaboy once in a while. And I'm not totally against that, but, but I don't want to live for it. It means for me to learn to live like Paul lived, where he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't live that way now. You know why? Because I love my life. I'm having fun. I like all of you. I think this world's a pretty small place for the most part. It won't end well, but it's going okay right now. right? My life won't end well. It's going to end in a sloppy way somewhere, sometime. But right now, I really like it. So when I think to die is gain, I go, yeah, that's, th- that's good theory. And I don't want my life just to suck so that I start to think dying is better. right? That's not the way I want it to go. I want my life to be really, really good, and for me to know that being with Christ is better. Right? That's what I want. It may not go that way, but that's what I want. And I want to learn to live like, like Paul did. And I want to learn to live sucking up God's love into my life and letting it bear fruit. So the burden of this message comes back to you. What does deep mean to you? What does deeper mean to you? What does it mean for you to wrestle with God about, I want to become a deeper person? with deep roots, bearing fruit for you. Let's pray. God, that was just a lot. And I pray pray for a mystical moment. I pray that we sense you directing us, challenging us, calling us. For some of us right now, we need to hear that you actually love us, that you really do care that you're here. For some of us, we've got something we've done in our lives where we go, Mm, I used to think God loved me, but I did that. And we think the rotten fruit we deliver to this world stops you from loving us as much as producing really good fruit would make you love us, and we're just crazy. And God, some of us are so caught up into our own image. We want to be spiritual, we want to be smart, we want to be mystical. God, would you help us to become enriched with your love? Strong in your love. Healthy in your love. And would you allow your love to flow through us so that we get to be part of the world, the the change you want to bring in the world and bear fruit. In Christ's name.